Dr. Sandler commented on the complex considerations in deciding upon adjuvant systemic therapy, and I met with oncology nurse Ms. Ann Culkin to review some of the patient education considerations in these situations. Ms. Culkin began our conversation by commenting on some of the psychosocial issues in the initial evaluation. It's different for each patient, but most patients have a high anxiety because now they're faced with a chemotherapy regimen where here they went to surgery thinking they would be cured of their disease at the time of surgery. And at the time of surgery, indeed, that's exactly what happened. There was no evidence of disease from the surgeon's point of view. However, when they looked at pathological findings, measuring tumor size, as well as lymph node involvement, vascular involvement under pathology is when they were decided that they should be referred for adjuvant therapy. So patients are told then at that time, and we really spend several minutes explaining the pathology of the lung cancer, which is really brought into the didactic of the team caring for people with lung cancer, how important the pathologist actually is in their care. And patients who've had their surgery, whether it be, it depends on what kind of surgery, if they had an open thoracotomy versus a fideocysted thoracoscopy, pain management becomes the number one priority for these patients in the immediate post-op setting. Again, adjuvant therapy ideally is the treatment plan calls for it to begin within eight weeks of their surgery date. So this is really a quick two-month rest period post-op where patients are finally getting back on their feet again. So that's what's different between this kind of patient, even compared to a colon rectal patient with disease, and a breast cancer patient, that their surgery, because of the pain involved in particularly thoracotomy incisions, is the challenge for patients and management of that. About how long does it take for the patient to become pain-free who's had a thoracotomy? It can take anywhere from six weeks to six months to many years, depending on if they have neuropathic pain involvement. I guess the other thing that's much more common in lung cancer is that the patient may have comorbidity, particularly if they're older and if they're heavy smokers. They might be dealing with cardiovascular disease, COPD. How does that sort of enter into the equation? Well, clearly, these are patients, the average age of the lung cancer patient continues to be, you know, 70 years of age. And indeed, these play havoc in patients' lives. So then to offer them 16 weeks of continuous intravenous chemotherapy, diabetes, hypertension, other comorbidities certainly factor into what treatment option is best available to these people. What are some of the chemotherapy regimens that are considered in this situation? First and foremost is cisplatinum plus vinarelbine. That is a 16-week combination, and it is weekly, getting cisplatinum 50 milligrams per meter squared on week one and week eight with vinarelbine, alternating doses, and then week three is vinarelbine alone, week four is vinarelbine alone, and then you repeat the cycle again for the next 16 weeks. We estimate that approximately 60% of the patients are not able to complete this regimen offered to patients due to toxicity and intolerability. Can you talk a little bit about what you say to a patient who's about to begin cisvinorelbine in terms of what they should be expecting? So we sit and we meet. We actually have the fact cards printed out so they're able to see how cisplatinum is spelled and how vinorelbine is spelled and pronounced so that they have a clear understanding of the names of the medications they're going to get. The second thing is we talk about how important hydration is, that they drink pre-cisplatinum and post-cisplatinum and their ability to do so. Again, these are patients post-op that their appetite may not be back 100% or their ability to to tolerate drinking two liters, perhaps, may not be something that they're up to par with yet. We also talk about the potential for nausea and vomiting and the antiemetic therapy that goes to prevent nausea and vomiting from cisplatinum. We talk about the potential for neuropathies from the cisplatinum that may, in fact, occur and why we'll examine them week after week to look at potential for neuropathies. 
With the venerelbine, the number one thing we talk about is constipation. Again, these are people that may be on narcotics post-op. The number one side effect of venerelbine is constipation, particularly given on this weekly schedule. We also talk about the potential for phlebitis from venerelbine. And all of these patients are offered metaports, which we have put in not greater than 90% of the patients to administer the medication to prevent tissue damage at the injection site of the venerelbine, as well as the prevention of phlebitis with this drug that's given every week. I'd like to kind of drill down a little bit more on some of the things that you say to patients. Just picking up on the last thing you were just mentioning in terms of constipation, what specific sort of practical, preventive, and therapeutic you know, recommendations do you make to patients about that? Well, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Department of Nursing actually looked at an algorithm of evidence-based practice looking at constipation as a disease that can affect everybody, whether they be pre-treatment, in-treatment, or even post-treatment. Constipation is a problem, particularly in elderly patients. So we talk about the need for stool softener and recommending those. We talk about the need for laxatives. We talk about the need for prevention of constipation. And we actually define constipation for patients, which at Memorial we use as not having a bowel movement for three days. A lot of people in the United States don't even understand the definition of constipation, or they've created their own definition of constipation, whatever that may be. So the definition and the interventions that we would use and reasons to call if, in fact, the interventions that we give them ahead of time or prophylactically, like Senna or Colace, stool softeners like that, don't work, then the reason to call us for further intervention. For patients getting venerelbine, if they don't have a bowel movement every three days, they need to call us. If the Senna or the Colace is not working, they need to call us. If, in fact, they go on to utilizing their own self-care measures, whether that be natural substances or even fleet enema or enemas, and those interventions don't work, then they need to call us. And a lot of times the on-call fellow is the person getting that call at nighttime or even on the weekend. What are some of the other things that you ask patients to call you about who are getting cis venerelbine? If they can't eat or drink for more than 24 hours, they have to call us. People getting cisplatinum and venerelbine. If they have nausea or vomiting, they're unable to eat or drink, they have to call us. Obviously, this combination, they can potentially lower their blood count, so potential for infection. So fever, a temperature greater than 100.5 or 38 Celsius, they have to call us potential for or changes in any part of their life that they're not comfortable with or concerns that they might have, they should call us. The patient says to you, what should I expect given all the attempts you're going to make to try to minimize GI toxicity? Bottom line is, what am I likely to go through in terms of nausea vomiting with this regimen? I work with Dr. Mark Chris, as you well know, is the anti-emetic guru of the current way we treat patients, particularly with cisplatinum. So utilizing a written schedule of how to take anti-emetics, we're utilizing dexamethasone, drugs, a prepotent, perhaps ondansetron, or can also help patients avoid nausea and vomiting. But again, if they do have nausea and vomiting, particularly people taking narcotics at risk for constipation, whatever the cause of their nausea and vomiting is, they have to call us. But truthfully, the way that we administer anti-emetics in the post-platinum couple days, that's not a big complaint for patients receiving this regimen. What is the biggest complaint? Their biggest complaint is fatigue, feeling tired, and truthfully, not having an intervention for the patients. I will say to patients before they even start, we're not sure what your fatigue is going to be from. It could be from the drugs, although coming back and forth to the center on a weekly basis is very tiring. There is no treatment for fatigue, and we tell them right up front, there is no treatment for fatigue. But what we know, the evidence has shown us the best treatment for fatigue is exercise. So here you have a fresh post-op patient, or six to eight weeks post-op, where you're doing your teaching, 
and you're going to tell them to exercise. So, you know, we use the example, does Mr. Smith run out and join the gym? In fact, no, but just doing simple things at home, like deep breathing exercises, using that incentive spirometer that they were given in the hospital, moving, doing their activities of daily living, getting up, getting dressed, showering their routine, what they know to be routine, and sticking to that routine, that gives them a valid measure of what fatigue is for them. So you think that the exercise itself helps prevent the fatigue? We do. Yes, we do. Just simple deep breathing exercises, simple stretching exercises does in fact prevent fatigue. Do you think that maybe some of the fatigue might be in some way related to stress? Of course it can be, certainly stress. There are multiple factors and probably we couldn't point to just one thing that causes their fatigue. It would be the post-op period, perhaps narcotics, perhaps they're anemic being in their post-op period. Or these are, again, elderly people or greater than 70 years of age who may have not exercised a day in their life who now underwent this major surgery and recovery period. What do you think should be a trigger for a nurse or even a family member that maybe the degree of fatigue is such that they need to let you know about it? We talk to them about that, staying in bed all day or the fact that they're not able to regain or even measure against what their activities of daily living. If someone can't take meals at the table, that's probably one of the most extreme examples that we give. You aren't able to take your meals at the table. You have to call us. If you're unable to dress yourself, you should be calling us. Those are the simplest ways to measure whether or not people are intolerant of their fatigue. When a patient receives adjuvant chemotherapy, is there sort of a typical time sequence of when they experience fatigue over the entire course and even within the course? It begins probably week four to five. That means that their first round of cisplatinum has been in. They've had four weeks of venerolabine by that time. That's when they begin to complain of feeling tired or feeling that they're get up and go, got up and went, so to speak, that they're feeling the effects of the medicines. And that's when they'll report it to you, although you ask about it every single week. And generally, sort of what's their condition physically and emotionally at the end of adjuvant chemotherapy? There's a great deal of excitement, (laughs) first of all, that they were able to complete, if in fact that patient was able to complete. There is a tremendous amount of anxiety of what's next from the patient's point of view. So you've told me I could do everything possible to prevent the disease from coming back. They want more. What else can I do? When can I have my next scan? They ask all kinds of preventative questions, of which right now we have no answer for them. The truth of the matter is we tell them to best live their life. But there's a tremendous amount of stress related to how they will continue to live their life now that they survived a catastrophic event, such as diagnosis of lung cancer in their life. I'm sure most cancer patients want some kind of input about nutrition. Anything in particular you recommend? We do. We tell them to maintain their weight, that this is not, you know, the weight loss program. And again, these are patients in the post-op setting who probably had roughly about a 10-pound weight loss just in the operative period and recovery period. So we do talk about eating a diet that's consistent with their four basic food groups to getting enough nutrition. Again, teaching them to eat all day long, not just the culture which we live, which is a breakfast, a lunch, and a supper, but to eat all day long and Hydration is extremely important. The fact that we carry so many bottles of water around in this country and yet we're so underhydrated speaks volumes to teaching people that they need to drink. When they ask you, you know, when is it that I'm going to sort of feel like I did before this all started, if at all, how do you answer? We ask them what day did they have their surgery and then we count six months from there and pretty much tell them it's roughly a six-month period. I guess it's always a challenge to know how much to tell patients that might occur when they're beginning a therapy in a way you don't want to scare them or have them anticipate more than is likely. But 
For example, with the docetaxel, do you discuss with them the potential for changes in their nails or their lacrimal ducts with tearing? And if so, what do you say to them? Indeed, we do. We talk about the cumulative effect, and that is cumulative. So the more drug you get, the more likely you are to have these side effects. And we talk about the excessive tearing. We talk about the onycholysis of their fingernail changes. And we also have them look at their nails with us so they know what we're looking at. And we describe, really, what could possibly happen so patients are aware of that. We also make them aware that it's not just their fingernails that are affected, but their toenails as well. So, you know, in the wintertime when they're not wearing any sandals or flip-flops here, and particularly in New York, you know, the fact that their toenails may be affected and what we'll do for that, that it's not a life-threatening complication, but can indeed cause us to intervene or maybe stop therapy. The tearing continues to be one of the challenges that we face since this drug came onto the market in the 90s. There's certainly several ophthalmologists that have tried several different things to help with the lacrimal ducts and the excessive tearing, including offering over-the-counter prescriptions, using Botox in the lacrimal ducts, all kinds of different strategies. And we've not seen a whole lot of people helped, although we do get them through it. Any sort of rough guess what fraction of patients have enough trouble with the tearing that it really interferes with their quality of life? At the doses that we're giving, probably anywhere from 40 to 50% of these patients. And what do you tell them to expect in terms of those two issues, those two symptoms going away? What's the time course of how that resolves? We do tell them it's going to go away or it's going to get better. That we assure them and they're very happy to hear that. We also tell them about the time frame is we kind of have to wait and see. Truthfully, there is no time frame, particularly with the tearing for patients. But it's roughly anywhere from three to four months post-completion of the drugs. Is there anything that you've seen that either helps in terms of prevention or treatment of the tearing? Over-the-counter eye drop called Refresh hmm. seems to help with the tearing. For years, we've tried, as far as the nails, topical treaty oil, which every dermatologist will tell you it doesn't help. But it seems that that intervention alone seems to help patients and prevent the weeping or the potential for infection of the nail beds. We also talk to them about protecting their nail beds, either with if they're females, with linen wraps that they can pay a lot of money for at the nail salon or just good old-fashioned band-aids for patients just to keep those nails intact. The other thing is is sunscreen and using sunscreen on their nails. People tend to forget to take care of their hands with sunblock, and that whatever reason, sunscreen seems to help the nail beds when on Taxotere. When a patient says to you, what am I going to see on my fingers? What am I going to feel? What do you say? We talk about first the discomfort that they may even feel before they can see, visualize anything on their fingernails, that their nail beds or even their fingertips may become sensitive to touch, to pressure, to feel. And then we talk about the color changes. Potentially, it may look like they're bleeding under their nail beds. And in fact, that's exactly what it looks like. And so we tell them that that could happen. We also tell them their nails can potentially fall off. I remember a long, long time ago, a woman, her greatest, the quality of her life was spent every Saturday bowling. So imagine this woman getting single agent taxateer at the higher doses. And lo and behold, she had six or eight fingernails that had been removed. And therefore, the quality of her life was clearly disrupted. Let's transition and talk a little bit about the issue of management of metastatic disease. Can you talk about some of the common therapies that you utilize, not just the chemotherapy, also biologic therapy? Now we have bevacizumab and erlotinib. Can you talk about some of the agents that you're utilizing and, again, what you say to patients in terms of what to expect? Well, in the metastatic setting, we look at their smoking history and decide whether or not those are patients that would benefit from drugs like erlotinib also looking at the pathology and looking at the molecular pathology to see if they do indeed express the mutation that would make them a likelier responder to a drug like erlotinib. 
What do you say specifically to patients about to begin erlotinib in terms of the potential side effects and toxicities? We talk about the pill. First of all, we talk about the safety and efficacy. We talk about the compliance of taking their medication at the same time every day, not forgetting. If they do forget, not doubling up. So the safety and efficacy of administration of the drug at home. We also talk about the safety of having this kind of medication at their home and that it's not for children or others to administer to them, that they are to take this themselves. So that compliance and safety and handling of the drug is a clear priority for all of us. Secondly, we talk about the biggest side effect to this particular medication is skin rash and diarrhea. So we talk about what the skin rash may in fact look like. We talk about when it may occur. We actually address before the patient asks us whether or not the skin rash means it works or does not work. Can you discuss sort of all those things specifically in terms of what you actually say? Sure. So we talk about the skin rash and we talk about the fact that the skin rash is a pustular kind of rash. We use the example of it's like when you were 15, 16 years old and had acne, although it's not acne. <laughs> we clearly state that it's not acne. It's a response to the medication. And it looks like you have little white heads or pustules on your nose, the bridge of your nose, your chin, your forehead, although the rash can occur all over your face, in your scalp, and it can spread onto your body. Reasons to call us are if the rash is not manageable or the interventions that we prophylactically give you, such as moisturizing the skin, washing the skin with a mild soap, such as Dove soap or basis soap, sun protection with sunblock. If all of those things don't work, then you need to call us, or if the rash is unbearable. We also talk about if females' makeup is okay to use on the skin rash. We talk about the fact that you don't need to go to a dermatologist. You should call the oncology nurse before you venture off into an oncologist. We've had all kinds of questions through the years from particular patients of whether or not they can continue their Botox regimen while they have this pustular rash. We talk about the potential for the rash is a unique rash where it usually starts on the face and can spread down the body. And that's how we can differentiate between what's a rash and what is other things going on with them. As far as interventions at Memorial Sloan Kettering, you don't know, prophylactically give people prescriptions for if this happens, you can take this. I know other institutions across the country do that. We do not. We want to hear from the patients before we start intervening with medications such as minocycline, doxycycline, even topical clindamycin for this skin rash. We also... As far as the diarrhea goes, we talk about the diarrhea, and this is not necessarily watery diarrhea, as people think, you know, Montezuma's revenge. We talk about frequent loose stools, and really, we get very descriptive in what that is versus, you know, Montezuma's revenge, so to speak, where they have liquid diarrhea repeatedly throughout the day. So we talk about that this drug indeed does cause loose stools, and the intervention is to take Imodium at the start of the loose stools, repeat it after each loose stool, and to call us if they have more than really five stools in a day in a 24-hour period. Getting back to the rash, Ann Stiegel told me that she's had some success using head and shoulders. Have you ever heard of that? We have, yes. Really? I, I, I just reviewed, I have an article that's going to be published with a nurse from the University of Pennsylvania whose name is Beth Eby on skin rash and prevention and treatment of skin rash using an algorithm that was discussed in an international forum in Chicago in the fall of last year. And also Mary Lacouture from Northwestern, who's a physician, really had brought tremendous insight into helping us with rash and side effect profile and how to manage skin rash. 
I was just intrigued by this head and shoulders thing. Is that just anecdotal or is there any actual literature? There is no literature. Unfortunately, no one's ever taken the time to really sit down and do a randomized clinical trial of using different products for different patients and managing skin rash. So a lot of our interventions are anecdotal based on best patient outcome. And even at Memorial Sloan Kettering, you know, we have utilized several different interventions including using products in the market like Proactive, for instance. What's that? That is a skincare product that you see in infomercials oftentimes, and it comes with a cleanser and a toner and a hydrator. For some patients, it works beautifully. For other patients, it burns, 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 so they can't use it. Other patients using sunblock, for instance, some of the PABA-free sunblock seems to help patients much better than sunblock that does have PABA in it. Other regimens, it's difficult. There's gender preference here in having men moisturize. Again, this rash can occur all over the body. It also causes skin dryness. So to get the 70-year-old, 70-plus-year-old gentleman to start moisturizing with Curel or Neutrogena on his arms, legs, face, back, on his skin to take care of his skin is a real challenge. And it's a challenge for their caregiver as well as for the patient not wanting to do this. Also, putting moisturizer on the face of a male is indeed a real challenge. Does it feel bad or look bad or what's the problem? It looks bad. It does not feel bad. Although some people will complain about hot. They feel this heat, heat, heat about an hour after they take the medication if they have the rash. So we actually intervene with one of our recommendations actually is is to put the Pond's cold cream in the refrigerator and that is actually soothing. When you talk to PhD dermatologists who study rash or skin reactions, they say, in fact, that's a wonderful intervention because what they're feeling is the inflammatory response of the medicine on their skin. And this soothing is actually taking down the inflammation there by offering them comfort or they're feeling better. Getting back to this head and shoulders, I don't know why that fascinates me, but <laughs> Anne said that you kind of put it in your hair and then sort of let it go down to your face and body. Is that what you do? I mean, do you ever tell that to patients? We do, actually. For patients who really have the scalp rash, it seems to help. The challenge has been compliance and safety, and are they taking their medicines at home, and are they following the instructions, in fact, that you give them? That's always a challenge for the ambulatory nurse when you write a prescription and tell them how to take it, and then you send them on their way. And if they speak English, you know that they've heard you in English, and the challenges of our other languages. Also, insurance continues to be a challenge to support and pay for this medication, Medicare being one of them. You know, this is a pill. It's not covered by Medicare. So getting supplements, insurance, and their prescription plans to pay for this expensive medication, although cheaper than intravenous chemotherapy, continues to be a challenge. And we are always advocating for better funding for patients taking pills at home. 